Tubals in a China Shop is brought to you by these great companies that are giving us money to let you listen to their stuff. Bullshit, Kyle. We make this show. We make this show. You and me. Tubals in a China Shop is brought to you by us. <laughs> Someone's got to pay the bills, Dan, because it's not our trading. <laughs> <laughs> All right, roll them. You are listening to an entertainment program put together by a company called Financial Ineptitude. Anything said on this show is not an endorsement or professional advice. Would you really want to tell a court of law you were suing us because you thought taking financial advice from two idiots on a podcast put out by Financial Ineptitude was a good idea? Really? Clown hats on your face. Hello and welcome to the China Shop, folks. I'm shopkeeper Dan, and with me as always is Kyle, creator of FinancialIneptitude.com. How are you doing today, Kyle? Doing great. Got a uh, great guest lined up today. Me too. Looking forward to picking his brain, maybe identifying some of my mistakes and having some fun figuring out how to fix them. Right, right. <laughs> uh, with us today, we have uh, Richard. How are you doing today, Richard? I'm doing just fine. It's a beautiful day in San Jose, California, near Silicon Valley. I'm jealous. <laughs> so jealous. And, and uh, uh, how did you pronounce your last name? Friesen or Friesen? Yeah, freezing. Just like freezing. I'm cold, it's I'm freezing. <laughs> freezing. The opposite <laughs> of what you're freezing. feeling. <laughs> but you're not in Texas, so you're doing fine. <laughs> well, you know, it, doing fine is an internal state and an interpretation of uh, the events that surround you. So one of the things that I work on with my clients is where does meaning come from? Does it come attached to the events mm. around us or is it something we create? Wow. Hmm. Already getting the wisdom and philosophy right off the I bat. Excellent. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. Well, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, Richard? Yeah, I uh, started out as a therapist, and then I had a friend from college, Joe Ritchie. He's mentioned in the uh, Market Wizards book. I think it's the hmm. second edition. And he started Chicago Research and Trading. And so he was making a lot of money, and I was more... Uh, my dad was a preacher, and I kind of had that kind of mentality, being a therapist. And so, but I was very tempted, and I went to work for Merrill Lynch for two years, then E.F. Hutton for a year, and then I joined Joe um, in Chicago and went to work there for the summer. And the first thing they did, and I don't know why, I have no explanation for this, but they put me, on the first time I was ever on an exchange floor, and this was the time when the S&P pit had maybe 500 people in it. They oh, put wow. me in the middle of that pit to hedge option positions. Whoa. As a, <laughs> totally wrong. As a therapist? I mean, somebody would be, I, I would get a signal to buy 100 S&Ps, and I would put up a bid, and all 500 people would turn to me and say, sold. Lee. <laughs> 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 I knew that something was wrong. <laughs> so, so that's interesting. You, you said your background is in psychology, but you still took a job at a trading floor and they stuck you in the pit, basically. Is, is it your background in psychology that got you that position or is there something about that? that he did not hire people from the industry. Uh -huh. He always hired people who had character, who had abilities, who could see the world as it is, and because what he did was he reformed and he, he looked at things the way they were. And for example, he even created his own option valuation system. And as a result, they had stuck in their own 
way of doing things for so long that there were so many more efficient ways to do it that he just cleaned up and he cleaned up fast. Wow. Does, uh, does uh, his method still work or is it, st is it somewhere we can go uh, do some research on or link to the description? No, well, anybody basically has? what he did was he created an option valuation system and you guys are probably very familiar with deltas and vegas mm -hmm. and implied volatility. And so he figured all that out and he even I he made all sorts of these little things and he he, he had at one point I think a hundred uh, PCs when they were just very limited in a room cranking out option valuations for the next day. So he was on the leading edge of creating uh, option valuations and as a result across many traders across many floors we were able to put together uh, disparities in in option values and in, in the implied volatilities sounds like a visionary then that's that's he, he really was but now of course all that AI right. is, you know taking care of that and you know when I was on the floor Somebody would come in and say, you know, I traded Micron, and I, I think you guys mentioned that in the last. Um, anyway, you know, somebody would say, uh, SEP 30 calls, and I would say three bid at a half. Three bid at a half? Three bid at $3.50? <laughs> uh, I mean, it was an amazing time that, you know, we had this huge wide bid offer spread. That now is three bid at three and a penny. Um, you're going to have to explain that a little bit to, uh, to me. I'm not sure I understand uh, what the term you're using. I know the spread. What's the three bid? If you go to your options screen yeah, and you're yeah. going to buy an option and you want to buy it or sell it, what is the bid offer spread now? And you probably are more familiar with that than oh, I am. It depends on how much volume is actually on that security. It could be anywhere from $1.50 to you know 10 cents. Okay. So the spread, bid offer spread can be uh, a dollar wide. Mm -hmm. You mean, let's say, for a, let's say for a $2 option. Right. What, what would that be? Uh, it shouldn't be that much. It would be maybe 15 cents. Yeah, 15 cents. Whereas, you know, we ran at 25, 30 cents on the bid offer spread. So it was free money on the floor. Things are a lot tighter now. Commissions are a lot less. And the retail trader now has uh, a chance to succeed. Interesting. Now, when you were on the floor, did that give you a greater opportunity to take advantage of like seeing order flow changing? Oh, exactly right. I mean, for example, when I saw the broker from Morgan Stanley start to walk towards the pit, I would notice <laughs> his gait, how, how he leaned forward. Was he relaxed and coming in with an order? Was, or was he steaming toward the pit? <laughs> right. You know, and he would uh, <laughs> ask for an indication of interest or he'd have an order. Uh, we could, what's called, lean on the order, which means we knew there was a thousand lot offered mm -hmm. of calls, I'd say. And if we bought the calls, we would sell the stock. So we would wait till the stock ticked up. And it ticked up higher than I would buy the calls and sell the stock. So I would lean on the order. In fact, sometimes I would sell the stock and not buy the order. The stock would go down. I would buy the stock back. It would go back up. I would sell it. And then if the stock went higher, I would take out the order. So it was kind of like uh, heads I win, tails I win. God damn, that's awesome. So uh, 
with the way technology has changed today then is there still benefits to being on the floor do they still have people trading on the floor or is everything all done there are but it's very limited and everything is electronic and certainly there was a tremendous amount of advantages we had a government supplied monopoly and as a result when you have those kind of monopolies uh, and limited competition uh, there's a huge advantage to it and even though there was uh, when I was on the floor I was on the board of the directors of the Pacific Exchange and I saw electronic trading coming so I made this big push to go all electronic in other words at that time uh, floor members had to be on the floor but I says, mm -hmm. why don't we create an electronic membership? But I was outvoted by the, by the floor brokers who said, basically, yeah, we're going electronic, but we're just going to bleed this cow until it's dead. So I lost the vote, and eventually things went electronic, and I was not on the leading edge of that. It sounds like people didn't, are they more concerned about their jobs than being on the cutting edge and trying to take a new position in the future? Yeah, unlike now where everybody is uh, absolutely concerned about the future more than their jobs. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> Tell us about the, the company that you founded then. I think uh, you mentioned that in your notes. Uh, before you joined the board, you actually started your own options trading firm? Yeah, I did. I, after I left uh, CRT, I, I uh, started trading on my own. Mm -hmm. And, you know, what brought me to where I am today, working with traders in terms of improving their mindset, was my own experience. And I started on my own, um, and the first year I was very careful. I didn't have the PhDs, the computerization, the technology, and all that I had in the firm. didn't have, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars of capital, so I was very careful. In the first year, I made $125,000. Next wow. year, being very careful, standing in the back of pit, carefully picking orders, I made 150, then 175, then 200,000 for the next two years. And it was at that point in April of 95 that I woke up in the middle of the night and there was this voice. And if I pause for a moment, I can hear that voice as clearly as I hear yours now. And that voice said, Rich. You're only worth $200,000. And it actually woke me up. I sat up in bed. I looked around the room. There was nobody there. My wife was sleeping peacefully beside me. It was like 3 o'clock in the morning. And I got up, showered, dressed, drove down to San... I lived in Marin across the Golden Gate Bridge. So I drove mm. across the Golden Gate Bridge to the exchange. I got there and it was still closed. So I sat on the concrete in front of the pillars and waited. When the staff opened it up, I was the first market maker on the floor. And normally I stood at the back of the pit and like I said, was very careful. Right. But this time I stood in the best spot. Now, most of your people who are listening aren't familiar with exchanges because they're all gone away. Right. But nobody owns a spot on the floor, but some spots are significantly better than others. So I stood in the best spot, which were, would be between two brokers that were very busy and right in front of the order book officials who also had orders. So it was like this triangle, and I was right in the friggin' middle of it. So as the other market makers came in, the guy who always stood there, who had the most capital, who was the meanest, who was just the toughest guy, stood beside me, and we chatted, and the bell went off, and he just tapped me on the shoulder. That's okay. 
I didn't move. <laughs> and <laughs> the pit just reflexively just stepped back like, OMG, no, what the <laughs> is going to happen now? And so we got a pushing match and the exchange official said, you guys get into a fight. It's a $10,000 fight for, well, fine for each of you. So I stood my ground. I pretended I had concrete boots. And when the orders came in, normally, I, like I said, I stood at the back of the pit. I was crazy. I'm going to step back from the mic and now do some shotting. I'll buy 100, sell you 50, buy 25, sell 30, I'll buy a five, sell. <laughs> but what happened was I had an internal limitation in my mind. I was only worth $200,000 a year because, well, I was a philosophy major. I really got into this by mistake. Joe helped me. I really didn't have the guts. All these internal beliefs. You'd just broken through and realizing that you'd set an internal limitation in your mindset at $200,000 a year. So you were on the floor shouting and everybody thought you'd gone mad. Right, I was. And as I built a trading firm, some traders made it and some didn't. And so as a result, I took a look at that. And I was very fortunate that my sister was a newly minted hypnotherapist and she came in and one of the traders who loved and respected his father couldn't make more than his dad. Now he wasn't aware of this on a conscious level, but his father worked two and three jobs, worked so hard, put him through college, did all this stuff. And to easily make more money than his dad, his subconscious said, you don't respect your father. What you're doing is you're putting him down. I know it's irrational, but as a result, he would make as much as his dad and then give it back. Another yeah. trader was from West Virginia, real poverty. And in his culture, family and extended family was what the world was made out of. And by making money, he was stepping out of that world that he had grown up in. And as a result, he would give it back. So we have these examples of that reflect the same limitation I had, and maybe for different reasons. But what's been amazing to me is that as we, I work with traders, either in my private coaching practice or in our groups or online, is that they are not prepared for success. And nobody believes me. And that's okay. We work on all the problems, all the trading issues of revenge trading, of not being able to pull the trigger, of not following the strategy, of impulse trading, over trading. You've been reading my trade journal. Uh, yeah, I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But what happens is when I say, okay, tell me about successful Dan. Tell me about successful Kyle. And then they go back to the issues because they don't have a clear picture of success. And in working with hundreds of traders, but I realize, and what's just hit me on the forehead like a brick, is they're not prepared for success. They can't visualize it because their survival mechanism knows how to struggle. It knows how to keep them in the struggle. It knows it can survive that struggle, but it doesn't know it can survive success. Now, I don't expect either of you or any of your listeners to believe that because it just is so counterintuitive and doesn't make success. Any sense because everyone says, oh, I'd love to be wealthy. Oh, that's not a problem. I think it does make sense. I was reading through on, uh, on, on your website 
And that was, I think, the message that, that stuck out the most is that we, we have a tendency to subconsciously recreate the same struggles because we know that we can succeed at them. That's why people repeat so many of the same mistakes. Uh, I think that does make perfect sense. I think it's hard, it's really hard to recognize it. So what's the, what's the plan? Like, how do you get out of that rut? How do you, how do you uh, prepare yourself for success? Or how do, you prepare, how do you get out of those struggles that you constantly keep you know, revisiting? Great. Well, I can certainly give you an outline of what I do. Or if either of you would like to talk about a struggle, we can demonstrate it. And that I means have, putting yourself on the line, which may not. I had no problem doing that. So I actually prepared this to ask you. So it kind of leads right into that. That's perfect. Uh, as a straight, uh, as a trader, the thing that I struggle with most is cutting losses on losing options trades. Uh, I recognize that. I, I now, when I find myself not cutting my losses, I, I, tell myself in my head that you know this is something that you should be doing I recognize that I'm not doing it I know it's a mistake and I feel like that's at least the first step to to um, trying to correct that bad habit is at least acknowledging that it's a bad move uh, but you know what's the next step like how do I why am I having trouble acknowledging those losses or rather than asking why let's go back to the last time you did it, do you have a recent example when you were in the situation where you knew what you should do and you didn't? Do you yeah. recall that? Yes. Uh, NNDM, Nano Dimensions, uh, had some contracts that were coming up. I uh, had a chance to get out of them at about a 50% loss uh, with about two weeks left remaining on the contract. And in my head, like the, the thing that, like once the value gets low enough to the point where it almost just feels like it's not worth it. Like it's not enough money to even like you've already written it off. I've already written it off for one and two. Like if I sell it, then it is a loss. I think is the is what it really comes down to. And I think I'm afraid of missing out if it does come back. Like if the long shot happens, and I think that's where my hang up is. Like I, it would hurt me too much to watch it recover. It hurt more to watch it recover if I had sold it and lost out than it would to lose it and just ride it and see what happens. Okay, so let's go back to that time. The option is down 50%. If you want to, you can close your eyes. Mm -hmm. Go back to the screen, you see it. The system says, get out. And there's this voice that says, but if it goes up. So tell me what the experience is of getting out and watching it go up. <laughs> uh, what is that like? gut-wrenching almost I think uh, painful where in your gut physiologically where in your body do you feel it I think it's right in the center of the stomach okay so I want you to imagine you've just gotten out and you've done the system and immediately mm -hmm. starts to bounce notice okay the gut, and I want you to exaggerate it and All notice right. what thought it takes to exaggerate it it could be oh you idiot you got out at the bottom. I don't know what it is for you, but what thought makes that gut even tighter? Hmm. Uh, I don't know that's necessarily a thought. I think it's more just seeing it happen. The idea that it'll keep going and going, and I just made the biggest blunder. Like, the bigger it goes up, the bigger the blunder. Right. Yes. Thank you, Dan. That judge. How do you judge yourself then? What do you say about yourself if that happens? Uh, then I'm just kind of kicking myself for missing it for reading it wrong okay so i missed it i read it wrong and my demand is that i never read anything wrong hmm. you read it wrong right 
bad boy. What are the words that would make that stomach clench? There are words there. You may not, they may not come up or they may come up, but if they come up, what words would really make that stomach clench? You idiot, you did it again. You idiot, you did it again. <laughs> okay, so say that to yourself. You idiot, you did it again, and tighten that stomach. You idiot, you did it again. Ooh, I can feel it. Tighten oh, I can feel stomach. it. Oh, wow. How does that feel right now? Not great. Yeah. Feels uh, better acknowledging it and getting down to the root of it. Yeah. Because I think you just, yeah, I think you actually just helped me uh, identify. Uh, it feels like the problem is not wanting to be wrong. And in a game where you're going to be wrong 50% of the time, that's, uh, <laughs> that's a pretty big stumbling block. So if you're wrong, what does that say about you? In real life? Yeah. Hopefully it means I'm learning. Mm -hmm. And if you're wrong, there's a part of you that clenches the stomach. What does that say about you? You're wrong. My stomach's clenching when I'm wrong. I, mean, I guess it means I don't like being wrong. Uh, I'm not sure what you're getting at here. Right. So there is something... And this is something you can think about. If I'm wrong, it says something about me as a human being. So for my clients, and some of them say, if I'm wrong, that means that I'm worthless. For some of it, if I'm wrong, my dad will never approve of me. If I'm wrong, that means that I don't have the intellectual capacity. If I'm wrong, that means my dreams are going to fall apart and they're not going to happen if I'm wrong, etc., etc., etc. There is some meaning there. And give that some thought. What does that mean about you as a human being on this earth? That's, uh, this is getting more profound than we usually go. <laughs> but no, that's, that's fantastic. So your psychology really has informed your trading mentality. Oh my God, yeah, it has. <laughs> Of course. So, you know, what we can now do is to look at that voice that demands that you are right. What is it about that voice that demands you're right? And then going into a business where you half your trades are profitable and half of them aren't. So traders who go into the business where they're going to be wrong or lose money half the time, and they've got a psychological structure that demands perfection, they be right or losing trades means that their dream isn't going to come true, or that their, their wholeness as a person is affected, how much pressure does that put on each trade at a subconscious level? I have traders that every tick up their way, every tick that's going their way, they say, yes, my dream's going to come true, I'm okay as a person, I'm going to prove it to my dad, my wife will respect me. I'll get laid more often. You know, all these things that every uptick is a referendum on their dream and all their hopes and wonderful ideas about the future. Every downtick, on the other hand, oh my God, I'm worthless. I'm going to be wrong. My dreams are going to fall apart. Oh my God, my hopes about making money and making money for retirement are no longer there. I'm going to be poor and hopeless and I'm going to be drinking you know, wine out of a paper bag <laughs> under a freeway. <laughs> oh, my God. How much pressure does it put on? And then when it comes to that option that falls half price, mm -hmm. 
And all of a sudden, rather than just being part of the system, okay, it's time to get out. It might turn around, it might not, but it doesn't matter. But it does matter on a deeper level, a deeper meaning. And that's why I was pushing for it. And it may not be clear what it is right now, but that's what I do with my clients. We look for the underlying issues. Otherwise, it's like playing fucking (laughs) whack-a-mole. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Like when I find myself making something that I shouldn't be doing, I at least point it out to myself and say, hey, you know, you're buying this. You shouldn't be buying this. You know you shouldn't be buying this. You're going to do it anyway. I know I'm going to do it anyway, but at least I'm aware of it. I know I'm a, I'm aware of why I did it. I know at least identifying it and acknowledging it, I think, makes it easier in the future to stop doing those bad behaviors. Right. And another question you can ask yourself is, what is the positive intent? Mm-hmm. In my current model and way of thinking and way that worked with my clients, we always look for the positive intent of that behavior. And I think it was mentioned earlier, and it was, well, it's the fear of the option turning around and going up after I get out. Right. That's more painful than losing the money. Well, the positive intent is to avoid pain. So mm-hmm. once we identify the positive intent to avoid pain, then we can say, in the long term, what is more painful? Following the system and having consistent profits? Or in that moment, relieving that anxiety? And the answer always is, of course, it's a lot less painful to step into my manhood or womanhood, (laughs) to step into my power, to step into my master trader's mindset. My gosh, and to allow those trades to come and go, that's a lot less painful. Okay, so the positive intent of going into a trade that we know we shouldn't is to either relieve anxiety or hope for the future or whatever it is. And then we can transform that positive intent into a better methodology. And that's how the process works. But if, if we're trying to just discipline ourselves, willpower, you know, uh, trying to uh, create New Year's resolutions or determinations, or we get up in the morning and say, I'm not going to eat that third piece of pizza, or I'm not going to have that revenge trade, and then we do it again. So the willpower is a way to maintain our current struggle, but an invitation to the positive intent of our behavior and creating new behaviors that supply that positive intent only better, then it becomes a positive invitation that feels better. And once you step into a new behavior that feels better, wow, then it's downhill. My God, does that feel better. So all the time with my clients, we're working on creating behaviors that feel better in the moment. Because once that happens, then it's easier to step into them. Then you start getting a positive feedback loop. Yeah. Oh my gosh, yes. All right, Dan, you want to take the spotlight for a little bit? I feel like I just had my hate my dad moment. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I actually did have another, well, this is going to... This is kind of segueing out uh, into a new realm. Depending on the sources that you're looking at, uh, the failure rate for day traders is something like 95%. Some say as high as like 98. Um, Why is that number so high? Is that just because of the people being unprepared? Um, Like so many people trying to jump into it and make a quick buck? Or is it more just it's that hard to make money day trading? Oh my gosh, you just listed the 
some of the really critical factors. So let me give you the typical client that calls me up for the first time. Mm -hmm. I've got $10,000 in my trading account. I've blown out two accounts. Uh, I uh, have some bad habits and I need to fix them. Okay, so you've, you know, you've, so your current success rate is, is pretty well zero. Yes, it is. So you've persisted in this. Yes, I have. So tell me about what it means to be successful trading. Oh, and here's I, the things they get. I'll be able to retire. I'll become a philanthropist. I'll be able to give my family security. I'll prove to my dad that I'm worthy. And we go down all these things. So mm -hmm. all these dreams are attached to trading. And it seems so easy that the dreams put incredible pressure on us so that we can't learn because Learning to trade is actually learning about ourselves, our identity, our beliefs, our behaviors, and doing it in a way that gives instant feedback. It's the most incredible way to learn about ourselves. But for the most part, we want to enhance the dream. And the dream is so important, we just keep repeating the same errors until we lose all of our money. So most traders come into it with a dream they're not prepared for. They think that uh, they can just, you know, they're really smart, They've, especially if they've had successes in other parts of life, that they can just do it. And they're not prepared to open their hearts and look at their own internal processes. And as a result, they just keep repeating the same thing. Like we have an assessment hmm. online. And one of the questions is, how dedicated are you to success? Scale of 1 to 10, the average I would put at 8.5. So that means almost everybody is dedicated to their success. But by this, I think they mean is, I have this dream and I won't let go of it because I don't feel like I have any alternatives. And as a result, most traders will fail. It's funny, I actually uh, took that exam while I was uh, doing some research for this episode. And when I got to that question, um, the way I interpreted it, it was how much work am I putting towards trying to realize this dream? So I felt pretty confident putting a higher number on there than <laughs> probably the average person deserves. Keeping trade logs, uh, you know, diving into everything, analyzing the stuff like we do at this show, opening ourselves up to our guests. Right. <laughs> <laughs> This is the most wonderful playground to learn about yourself. The traders who become master traders, who become consistently profitable, also it changes the rest of their lives because reality is, is handed to them on a daily basis. And as they work through these issues, oh my gosh, they're working through issues for the rest of their lives. So even for traders who, who aren't going to become professionals or depend on this for a living, it is a wonderful playground to learn about yourselves. And that's where why I'm here, to help those traders make that trip easier, more pleasant, and faster. It's interesting. The more that we dive into this and the more that Dan and I learn, the more it seems that everything really is mental. Like That's your biggest block in order to, to be successful is getting past your own flaws and identifying 
you know, like, like we just did a moment ago, the, the reasons for the mistakes that you're actually making, like the deeper level, why you can't quit it. Yeah. So, you know, as we go down, we we're changing our mindset. And if we look, if a trader comes to trading and says, okay, this is something I don't know about. It's obviously a business that is it's not like they're, you're in a local community and there is some need that, that is obvious and people will pay a premium for. It's like this is well arbitraged over the entire world. Mm-hmm. This is, there's not any really hidden uh, values here. Everything is pretty well arbitraged out of, you know, values are out of existence. And you can pick and choose those times where there is an advantage. And that is just huge. And to do that is to know when you do have an advantage, when you do have a system, and to realize that it's a statistical game and that if you have an edge, it will play out with time. Mm -hmm. Uh, Like once I was on the floor and this uh, big spread came in, I think it was Micron, this big spread came in and it was... Advantageous, and it looked like it was off of value quite a bit. So I put on a big mount, big piece of it, mm-hmm. and the trader next to me said, "You know, you bought those at two, you know, two and three quarters, and you just sold them at six. Isn't that great?" I had no idea what I bought it at. <laughs> All I knew was that this was a statistical edge. Uh-huh. I never kept track of my trades of which one's won, which one's lost. The question was, is this a statistically advantaged trade? The other question is, what are my risk parameters, which I always stayed in the middle of? And if I continually take statistically advantaged trades, I charge. At the end of every month, there was money. Right. But the money <laughs> was not my goal. If the money is your goal and profit is your goal, you're screwed. Mm-hmm. Because then you are going to warp your, your execution to fit that need. But if you, in other words, it's the difference between process and outcome. If right. your job is to continually improve your process, you'll be surprised by your outcome. Hmm. If your demand on yourself is to create an outcome, you will continually fall short and berate yourself and create, you'll be out of rapport with yourself in the market. That's an excellent point. Yeah, we always try to separate the results from the process because uh, there have been plenty of times where I've made a, the wrong move and made money off of it. Uh, but we like to try and point out like, yeah, but it really doesn't matter. That was the bad call, not the right move. Yeah. Yeah, we do a good, bad, and the ugly segment where we each pick a good thing, a bad thing, and an ugly thing from the previous week. And I think we vetoed each other a couple times over picking something that made them money, but the process is wrong. Like, no, that can't be good. Your, your method was bad. <laughs> or vice versa. You- I, I was in San Francisco on the floor of the exchange, and I hired a trader from, from Chicago. I wanted to have, get a seat on the SIBO mm-hmm. and trade options there. So uh, I got a call from a guy. He says, I hear you're looking for a trader. I said, yeah. And so we talked for a while, and he had blown out twice or maybe even three times um, working for other firms and himself. And he says, I've learned my lesson, but I have a lot of experience. So I thought, 
Well, if somebody really learned their lesson, so I brought them out to San Francisco. We went for a hike in the woods, had some great conversations, and uh, talked about my core philosophy, our risk management, and all that. And so we went back to the seaboat. And every day I get a risk management report. I had about a half a dozen traders at that time. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, my risk management was way out of whack. A sudden down move in the market could cost us 25 or 30% of our capital. So needless to say, I started looking and it came from selling out of the money puts um, in IBM. Mm-hmm. And there was, and it was on the SIBO and it was this trader. So I call him up and says, Hey, we're way out of our risk parameters. Take those in. So I, you know, so next day I noticed they were still there. And I just, I didn't say at the end of the day, I said, Hey, they're not in. He says, well, uh, they're really, uh, kind of expensive now. And, uh, you know, if I take them in, they're just going to go to zero. And I said, but we're out of risk parameters. <laughs> take them, get them in by the end of the day. So the next day I look, more of them. Oh, dear God. Oh. So I said, hey, you want to take them in or should I give them to a broker? He says, but we just can't take the loss now. I said, do you realize you're doing what you did to blow out two or three times? Do you realize you have the same process? He says, no, it's going to be okay this time. So I fired him on the spot, (laughs) gave the order to a broker. You know, I lost thirty or forty thousand or whatever it was on on the trade. But you know, in terms of just repeating our same behaviors, it was just amazing that he had an outcome and he believed in his outcome rather than the process that we had that was just so successful week after week, month after month, and year after year. But he had a belief that he was right. Right. And that is the most dangerous thing a trader can have. Yeah, I think I've run into that before. Not wanting to believe I was wrong on AMD. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. I also, I get into trouble too when uh, I believe I'm right and then things go wrong and then I lose confidence in not only myself but my process and then i start compounding my mistakes boy what you said is so important if you believe you're right and it starts to go against you and it's not just like statistically well this trade isn't working but it's a referendum on your abilities and your confidence so what happens then is your confidence goes up as it if you're right and it goes your way and your confidence goes down. I have something called the confidence circle. Mm-hmm. And in this confidence circle, a trader starts out with magical thinking and says, oh, I'm just so incredible. I'm going to be able to call the markets intuitively or I can just trade. And then he starts losing. Sometimes they're really lucky or sometimes the naivety is actually kind of, they just watch the patterns and they just pick them without fear. And they start losing money and they say, well, my confidence is now connected to my successful trades. So then their confidence level goes up and down with successful and unsuccessful trades. And then they move to strategy confidence. Okay, I need a strategy. So they develop a strategy and it works for a while and their confidence is then attached to the strategy. 
But as you know, all strategies eventually fail because the market changes its characteristics. Yep. Then they lose confidence again in their strategy. Then they start to get confidence in their ability to look at the type of market and apply that the right kind of strategy. For example, in a trending market with full pullbacks, a crossover moving average uh, strategy is going to work really well. But in, an, uh, in a uh, mean reversal market, a uh, moving average crossover strategy isn't going to do so good. <laughs> so they learn to apply a strategy to a market and become much more sensitive to the market. But the final stage of this, of my confidence circle, is when they look at themselves and say, I am here, the market is there, I'm willing to listen to it, I have confidence in myself that I can handle it, I can manage my risk, I can be curious about the market, I can learn about it, I can apply a strategy, I can take wins, I can take losses, and all of this, I am confident with this full context and everything going, that I am able to be, stay in my master trader's mindset and handle it all. And that's where my goal for all my clients is. Feeling kind of expiring more than anything else. <laughs> I wanted to ask you about strategies or analysis tools that you use the most when you're trying to identify and execute options trades or what would a, a beginner or somebody starting out or more intermediate, like what should they be looking at uh, to, to increase their repertoire or to try to improve their successes? I just had a call when I was walking my dog yesterday and the guy was really lucky because normally, um, you know, I'm not going to spend a lot of time with someone unless they're a client. Mm -hmm. But I was walking my dog anyway, and he's starting option trading. And so what I, I says, do you know what the term implied volatility is? He paused. Mm -hmm. He said, what? I says implied volatility. So that's the first thing you need to learn is implied volatility. And I went through and explained it to him, you know, one a stock trader, one stock trader in 100 could have uh, a, a 110 call trading at almost nothing. And another one, it could be, you know, three, four bucks. And I said, that is implied volatility. So what you want to do is to chart the implied volatility. Now, I'm sure that if, you know, on the sophisticated systems like Thinkorswim, I haven't looked at it for a while, but there are ways to do this. But I used to chart the at-the-money calls and puts and give them an applied volatility, the 20 delta calls, and the 20 delta puts. So, of course, the strike price is going to change because I try to stay as close as I can to the 20 deltas. And I just charted those by hand. Mm -hmm. Now, what that does is it gives you a sense of option pricing by charting the implied volatility. So, I've, there's one thing that... I think option traders, a lot of them just look at a lot of complex condors and reverse this and reverse this and uh, butterflies and, and then they, when, when things go against them, they hedge it with something else more complex. And I'm saying just keep it simple. Chart the implied volatility. And in my experience is where the money is, is when the vol implied volatility has been really low start buying. Now, mm -hmm. the risk of that, of course, is that you're going to lose three, four, five, six times in a row, but when it hits, um, you're going to make it big. I, 
I don't know if you guys are familiar with Nisam Taleb in this book, Anti-Fragile. No, but I'm going to write that down. Okay. So he talks about systems that are fragile and anti-fragile. And a system that is anti-fragile, it does well in chaos and in, uh, when things are unknown and things are crazy. So the buying, out of the, buying low volatility is anti-fragile. Things get really good when a volatility picks up. Mm-hmm. The other way that I've made money is when things are horribly crazy. Um, do you have time for a quick story? Yeah. Okay. Uh, Comdisco, way back when, um, had a, uh, an, a, this was, I mean, this is, uh, I don't know, uh, was it uh, late 80s? I don't remember the date, <clears throat> but they had, turned out they had an accounting problem and misstated earnings or something, and the drop, stock dropped uh, 30, 40%. And I was new to the floor in the Pacific Exchange. I was working for CRT, and they gave me a call on, <clears throat> on the, the crook. They couldn't have phones on the, on the floor at that time. Right. So the clerk called me and said, your boss wants to talk to you. So um, Gus, who was my supervisor, says, we want to sell some premium income disco. It's like at 80 implied volatility. So if you know implied volatilities, you know that's pretty high for a stock. <clears throat> so I went in and looked at all the different options, and Rich Friesen was so careful as a philosophy major. Uh, so I found one that was trading 85 implied volatility, and I sold 20 contracts. So I went back on the phone to Gus, and I said, Gus, I've sold 20. There was this pause, and he says, no, Rich, we really want to sell some volatility here. So I went <laughs> back and carefully sold uh, 80 more and got to 100 of different strikes, calls and puts, and came back to the phone and said, okay, Gus, we've sold 100. He says, just a minute. There was a silence. I heard some whispering. The phone rattled. And Joe Ritchie, the head of the firm, came on. He said, Rich, you want me to give this to a broker? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God. I went back. Sold. Sell you 50. Sell you 100. Sold. Sold. (laughs) I sold about 1,000 options in about 15 minutes. I brought the bullet. I myself bought the volatility down from about 80 to 60. I went back and said we sold about 1,000. And uh, a week later, we had a half million dollars in our account from that trip. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> uh, you know, I was thinking small, but they had, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars in right. capital so they could take the risk. But my point is you want to look where their emotion in the market or the lack of emotion You'll want to look at those transformational points. Mm-hmm. Most money I've made trading options was when <clears throat> the market moved, the market character, the type of market shifted. Um, uh, more stories about that if you want to hear them, but I don't know where we are on time. But uh, there's just a lot of, a lot of fun about uh, those mood shifts and those people that are locked into being right Every morning when I went down to the floor, I said, there's a bullet heading for my forehead. What is that bullet? Every morning I said, I'm wrong. Where are they going to get me? And as a result, we rarely had a drawdown, even during dramatic times, of more than 10 or 15%. Mm-hmm. We're going to wrap things up with, uh, with some of the fun stuff. Kyle, Kyle go, go right ahead. Okay. So, Richard, uh, one of the questions I used to always get asked when I was in the military is what the most, you know, realistic submarine movie was. Uh, and I always surprised people when I said that the answer was um, Down Periscope. 
<laughs> everyone thought it was going to be something like Das Boot or Crimson Tide or, you know, one of those other ones. So my question for you that is, which movie is most accurately showcases the chaos of the trading floor? And <laughs> I think, I think the closest is going to be trading places, but I want to hear your take as somebody who was there. Yeah, I don't remember all the details, but um, I was actually in the movie Quicksilver with Kevin oh. Bacon. Oh, really? Yeah, they came. Oh, God. You may want to edit all this out. But, um, <laughs> we're standing on the floor, and a whole bunch of people came through with clipboards. And they were making notes. We all had badges on, and they were mm -hmm. writing down badge numbers. And we couldn't figure out, Jesus, is this the SEC? But they weren't wearing suits. We couldn't figure it out. And then later we were told that there was going to be a movie on the floor, and they were looking for extras. Mm -hmm. So um, the next day they said, okay, we're going to be calling the people who were selected to, to uh, be extras, and we're going to call out your badge number. So I was the one of the first badge numbers to be called, and, of course, I rubbed at everybody else. They're looking for good-looking. <laughs> they're looking for dynamic. <laughs> God, this is incredible. I'm, you know, you putzes. And so I rubbed it in. So when it got to the room and they collected all the people, what was the common criteria, do you think? Uh, the loudest? Or old. Old? Oh, oh no. 20-year-olds <laughs> <laughs> on the option floors wearing bowling ties and, you know, sloppy jackets and knit caps. That these were, the, these were the professionals that were making their trade. So they just picked all the old guys. <laughs> oh, wow. So, of course, when I got back to the pit, I got it in return. Oh, I bet. <laughs> but anyway, that movie was totally unrealistic because Kevin Bacon walked onto the floor without a badge, you know, without any credentials, and started making trades. So, you know, I, there's an effect whereby if you see a movie where you know, like I'm also a pilot, you know, where mm -hmm. you know something about it, you say, oh, my God, that's not realistic. Mm -hmm. But yeah. I think you can apply that to almost all movies because they've got oh, to yes. tell us. Uh, what's the funniest thing you ever saw happen on the trading floor? Funniest thing on the trading floor. Yeah, is there is there any memories that like like you make you make you smile, make you laugh when you think about it? Like, oh, that was a that was funny. How adult is this show? <laughs> it's it's explicit. explicit. It is adult show for sure. Uh, some people who ate big burritos would do oh. a fly through. <laughs> and these guys, I don't know what was wrong with their intestinal system. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they literally clear out a pit. Oh, my God. You know, we all are a little smelly. But I don't know what, how they did it or how they managed it. But it was damn toxic. It was like uh, tear gas. The burn your nose hairs out. <laughs> Trading's been halted on the San Francisco Exchange today. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> All right. Uh, I got one here. Uh, have you ever accidentally traded the wrong ticker when you're trying to fill your boss's order? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I had a feeling that might happen. <laughs> What's interesting is on the serious side, when I was on the S plane training in the S&P pit, mm -hmm. is you're trading with somebody across the pit with hand signals, and sometimes there would just be confusion. But it was a, believe it or not, it was a place of honor. There was mm -hmm. a real honor code that if you took a bad trade, you would take it. Or if there was confusion, you would split it. And next day you would go to work. Right. But if you tried to get out of a trade where that was confused, 
you would be shunned and you would be screwed. Nobody mm. would trade with you. So believe it or not, in that capitalistic, greedy, chaotic system, there, uh, your character was evaluated on the floors. And if you were slimy, everybody knew it and everybody stayed away. That's funny. My wife was actually just wondering, because we just watched Trading Places to do some research for this. <laughs> uh, <laughs> She was asking, like, oh, like everyone's just writing down on their little notepads, like the trades that are coming through, and they're saying buy, sell. And she's like, well, what, like, what keeps them from honoring all this? They just write it down, and then it's just honor system. It's, it's the honor system, and then That's the tickets crazy. are matched up, and then afterwards they'll come with a bunch of out trades mm -hmm. where you know somebody bought five and somebody sold sold a hundred, or you know, there or the other person says, I didn't trade with you, uh, so. And those were are all all worked out honorably. Mm -hmm. And there are some people who didn't, and they didn't last on the floor very long. That's really funny. I did not realize it was, <laughs> it was so so casual. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I guess electronic trading uh, has, has has shifted that. Certainly has. Yeah. Uh, anything else you want to go over, Dan? Should we do a game, a quick game of buy short ignore? Yeah, let's let's end it with the uh, buy short ignore. <laughs> <laughs> Are you familiar with uh, the Mary Kill Screw game where you talk about three female celebrities and then are male? You talk about three people. Which one you'd marry? Yeah, three people. Which one you marry? Which one you'd kill? Which marry? Fuck kill. Oh, okay, I'm probably not up on celebrities. So this no, this isn't celebrities though. This is going to be stocks. We're going to do it. We're going to play a game of buy short ignore. Yeah, you either buy the okay, stock, you want to uh, short the stock, or you just want to ignore it. We'll give you three, and then you have to choose which one you do which to. Okay, I may not be familiar with it, but go ahead. All right, Tesla, Neo, and General Motors. I got to go to a story. <laughs> I, I, I got a call from a hedge fund manager, and he says, I'm short Tesla. I've lost half my hedge fund, oh my God. and it's at $87. And I'm going crazy, and my wife has thrown me out of the house because I'm, I'm, I'm so bad. So I went to see him, and uh, uh, and he shorted Tesla way, way back there. And at that time, it was a rational short. Right. Well, I'm not shorting Tesla. No, I would not either. <laughs> <laughs> I think people have learned their lesson. <laughs> okay. Right. So what? G GM. Yeah. So n not shorting Tesla. What about Neo or GM? Neo, I, I'm not familiar with. Uh, it's the other uh, electric vehicle manufacturer from China. Chinese company. Yep. Sure, I'll short them. Neutral on GM. Okay, so you're going to buy Tesla, short Neo, and uh, ignore GM. You have, to, <laughs> you have to use all three of them one time for each stock. All right, how about, uh, how about Virgin Galactic, Boeing, or Lockheed Martin? Uh, my wife has finally given up on her Boeing stock, so I'll buy it. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. Uh, she said to me last week, Boeing, it's not, I've had it for years. I'm giving up, so it's probably time to buy it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you want to uh, throw out where people can find you? I think you have an upcoming book that's, yeah, that you uh, got coming. Yeah, Conversation with Money. What I noticed was, and many of my traders, as we mentioned earlier, that they weren't prepared for success. That they had conflicts, internal conflicts about wealth and money. So I'm writing a book. It's about Joe, who's a journalist who has all the progressive and social uh, concerns. <clears throat> Excuse me. 
And as a result, he's internally conflicted about money. And they have conversations. Mm-hmm. And they start talking about money. And just like we did today, we start to look at the deeper beliefs, the deeper identities underneath those uh, behaviors to, to see, to help people uh, develop rapport with themselves, rapport with money, and rapport with their success. So that's conversations with money. Anybody can email me, rich at mindmuscles.com. That's rich at mindmuscles.com. If you have trading issues or trading questions or interested in developing rapport with your money, I really just love my clients. I love people connecting with me. We have so much fun. There's so much to do that uh, I really love the engagement. Mm-hmm. Uh, we do, you know, if you want to get on our mailing list, send me an email. Uh, I do, like I have a, uh, a, a live meeting coming up on, but it'll probably be over by this time this goes public, on our persistent trading mistakes and how we pers- keep persisting and making the mis- same mistakes and what we can do. So anyway, there's lots of things coming up. There's lots of blogs at mindmuscles.com for traders or mindmusclesfortraders.com. There's just a huge wealth of information there and plus the assessment that you took and that you already mentioned. All right. We'll put links to all that stuff in the uh, episode description for anybody who wants to find that. Um, Is the uh, book of when's that coming out? Is that available for pre-order or is it coming out two years ago? Oh, okay. <laughs> you said you were writing it. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I just I hired an editor who cut 30% out. Okay. And, of course, my stomach goes, oh, no, all the good stuff. <laughs> right. Uh, but anyway, so I'm going back and just uh, making sure all the patches work. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's, uh, it's so I'm hoping it'll be out by mid-year. All right. Perfect. Sounds good. Sounds good. Okay. Th- thanks for joining us. Uh, Richard, we gotta we gotta get you on again sometime because I, I feel like we got a a lot more stories to get out of you. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah, I give you guys an appreciation. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. All right, folks, thanks for joining us. Uh, it's just been fantastic. We've all had a great time. Does anybody else want to get anything in here at the end before we uh, wrap it up? Richard, anything else? You any parting words of wisdom? Oh, I just appreciate your honesty, your openness. You're willing to talk about your mistakes. And I think that that is a model for investors and traders. And I think that you guys are just really providing an incredible service. So my hat's off to you. Oh, thank you, sir. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. All right, folks. Okay, so we're closing up the shop for the day. Uh, Thanks for joining us. If you like our show, let us know by rating and subscribing on your platform of choice. And uh, if you like our show and hate social media, then just tell your friends. And as always, if you have no friends and hate social media, you could just give us money and we'll advertise to help you find more friends. All right, uh, folks, (laughs) happy trades and uh, we'll, we'll catch you next time. All right, bye, folks. Two Bulls 
in a China Shop is an entertainment program, and all thoughts and opinions expressed in the show belong to the hosts and not of any company. They are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual or on any specific security or investment product. It is only intended to provide entertainment about stocks in the financial industry of trading. If you make trades based on what you hear in this show, you assume all risks for those trades.